The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. One oh seven seven the Bronx, one oh seven seven the Bronx dot com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters two thousand nineteen Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the Bronx studios at Ryder University. I'm Professor Jonathan Carp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute and the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics presents Health Four One One, truthful health information to expand knowledge and perspective. This program communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business as well as the politics and, of health and healthcare. I am in the studio today with Mandy McLean, our undergraduate producer, and our guest, Dr. Jesse Oldham. We are having a conversation today about concussions, the myths and realities about concussions, and we welcome you to listen in to our conversation. Uh, welcome, Dr. Oldham. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure having you here. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Oldham is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Michelle e. Center for Sports Industry Injury Prevention. That was rolled off my tongue real easily <laughs> at Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts. Um, and she joins us. And for full disclosure, Dr. Oldham gave a presentation here on the Ryder campus last week, and it was uh, I was so inspired by it. I asked her to come on Health 411 and sort of continue on. But um, Dr. Oldham, can you tell us a little bit about your background and um, just to introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Yes, again, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I am, like Dr. Carp gave in the nice introduction, I'm a postdoctoral fellow up at Boston Children's Hospital uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. I am originally from North Carolina. I did my undergraduate degrees at North Carolina State University, and those were in biology and nutrition. I went on to get a master's at UNC Charlotte in clinical exercise physiology or kinesiology. They kind of changed the degree halfway through. Um, and that's really where I, I started to get into research. And I wrote a thesis there and then, you know, kind of fell in love with the research world. And so I went on to get a PhD at University of Delaware in applied physiology. And, and here I am and doing a postdoc. So yeah, my, my concussion interest really started in undergrad. I took a, a biological psychology class and we were asked to write a paper on really anything related to biological psychology. And so I ended up writing a paper on brain injury. And from there, my interest really just snowballed. Um, I was an athlete my whole life, and so um, I've had a couple of concussions myself and got into the science behind it and really enjoyed it. So I had an opportunity to, to, to do some concussion research for my thesis and enjoyed it so much that I went on to do the PhD, and here I am still doing it today. Wow. So I can tell you, as a professor who often um, gives students uh, or suggests the students do a paper or do some research on something you might care about, that's like what we, 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 that's like the golden, that's you got the golden ring for doing something <laughs> that was really inspired you to follow on. And so you study concussions and do you, I'm assuming, I mean, do you work with an animal model? Do you work with people? 
Yeah, so I have been uh, more on the clinical side, so just working purely with the human population. And, and my research has really centered around the effect of concussions on gait and postural control. So how concussions affect the way that you walk and the way that you balance. And then currently how that relates to sustaining a subsequent musculoskeletal injury uh, following concussion. Excellent. So let's take a step back before we move on and confuse anybody. Um, oh, the word concussion is something that we've all heard that word. Um, I, we know that there's a lot of myths and you know, uh, folklore associated with concussions. Can you start by, before we go into those things, can you tell us a little bit about what a concussion is, the biology of concussions, um, and that sort of thing? Absolutely. So um, a concussion by definition occurs uh, or results from a, a direct or an indirect biomechanical impact to your head, neck, face, um, anywhere in that region. Um, it can also be called caused from a whiplash injury. So in something like a car accident mechanism, we see a lot of whiplash injuries. But basically what happens is your brain ends up moving a few millimeters within your skull and hitting the side of your skull. And so from a physiological perspective, what that results in is an energy crisis within your brain where immediately following a head impact, you see this significant increase of excitatory neurotransmitters and then that kind of follows with a spreading depression throughout the brain so it really does results in an energy crisis within your brain and that's where you start to develop symptoms your your brain's trying to to work in overdrive to correct the energy mismatch but it just doesn't have the resources to do it at that moment and so that's where we start to see um, these symptoms occur and when you say symptoms what kind of things happen when your brain bangs up against your skull so typically the most common symptoms that we'll see reported, um, headache, dizziness, uh, some nausea. Oftentimes if an athlete will report just not feeling right. They just don't feel right. Something feels off. And, and there's a number of different symptoms that can occur. Um, and it really varies from person to person. Um, we'll see, you know, memory issues sometimes, um, concentration issues, sleep issues. So there's really several categories of, of symptoms that you can uh, see following concussion. And we, and we will talk about some of those things. And we're, we're going to get to talking about your research on gait and tracking these things. But does every blow to the head, your jaw or neck, do they all cause concussions? Because it doesn't seem like a, if we were building a human, we, we, I don't think we would build one whose head was so sensitive to everything that it bumped into. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and the answer is no. And I know I talked a little bit about this in, in the talk on Friday, but it's really kind of hard to designate a concussion threshold. And there's some research that has, but it varies from person to person where you'll see people take hits that don't look that bad. Like if you see a football player take a hit and you're like, oh, that really didn't look that bad, they might end up with a concussion. Whereas you see somebody get blown up on the football field and take a huge hit and they don't report any symptoms and they seem to be fine. So it's very tricky uh, from a, a diagnosis and a recovery standpoint because one hit that might cause someone a concussion might not cause someone else a concussion. So it gets tricky. Is a con do, do you, when you have a blow to the head, does it, do you have to, what they call blackout in order for it to be a concussion? You don't. And so I think that's one of the common myths uh, that still people believe today is that you have to have this loss of consciousness. You have to completely be knocked out um, for it to be a concussion. And, and that's not true. Um, we don't consider loss of consciousness to be a symptom or a sign of concussion. 
and only typically about 6% of concussion cases will actually experience any sort of loss of consciousness. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a common concussion myth, but no, uh, you do not have to lose consciousness in order to be diagnosed with a concussion. And you also mentioned the, the breadth of symptoms that are associated with concussion. And another way of saying that is that the symptoms are not exactly the same for every person who has a sufficiently large blow to the head to have this happen. And so uh, some of us might have an idea that different parts of our brain are responsible for different uh, modalities that we have, whether it's hearing, seeing, moving. Can you, is it fair to say that depending what the symptoms are, you can tell what part of your brain banged up against your skull? I don't know if I would say that necessarily. I don't know if we're there yet. There is some research looking at how, you know, different areas of the brain are affected depending on where you get hit. Um, and there are several studies that look at impact location and how much strain that causes on your brain tissue. But the general practice for concussion management is that you're going to monitor and treat someone's uh, the same regardless of, of how many symptoms and what kinds of symptoms they're presenting with um, immediately post hit. Cool. So it's not fair to say that if you have, um, uh, you start seeing double after a blow of the head, that, that means your visual cortex was the area that banged up against your skull or something like that. Not necessarily, no. Um, and in terms of the damage that happens in the brain, are concussions always sometimes associated with bleeding? or is it micro tears of the tissue? Is it just a movement thing? What's going on in the physiology of the organ? Yeah, so typically, when you look at the concussion definition, it's typically defined as a functional disturbance as opposed to a structural disturbance. And so within the brain, you might see some very microstructure, on a microstructural level, um, some tiny tears, tiny bits of bleeding, but typically nothing that would show up on a neuroimaging uh, finding. So it, it's concussions are referred to as functional disturbances and not structural disturbances like you would see in more of a moderate to severe TBI situation. Right, so it's, it's, so you, d you don't necessarily need an MRI machine or some, some fancy machine that goes ping. To, Correct. There's <laughs> an old reference um, in order to die. So it's, by, it's basically diagnosed by the behavior and, and one's answer to the questions that a trainer or a coach or somebody might Correct. Okay. Correct. Signs and symptoms as opposed to a, a neuroimaging finding like a CT scan or an MRI. Now, do, do concussions only happen in athletes? No, anyone can have a concussion. Um, actually, if you look at uh, the mechanisms behind concussion, overwhelming majority of them are occurring from uh, falls and motor vehicle accidents in the general population. And so um, sports is just a, a subset of the population who sustains concussions. I guess they're sort of the easier subjects to study because sometimes they're they're more. It, it's an easier way to get a subject pool. I can Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Jesse, uh, we have to take a quick break for some underwriting announcements. Uh, we'll be right back with more healthcare talk. You are listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronx.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 
1077 The Bronx or 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the Bronx studios at Ryder University. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Dr. Jesse Oldham from Massachusetts in uh, Children's Hospital there. Dr. Oldham is a research scientist and she studies concussions. And we are having a conversation about what concussions are, what they're not. So we're going to get into some of her research in more details. But in the break, Mandy, you said you had a question for Dr. Yeah, Oldham. I do. Okay. So I know you recently just said that people are diagnosed with concussions based upon like their symptoms and like the questions that they answer. So is it possible for like an athlete who typically like gets asked those questions to like kind of lie and say that like he doesn't have those symptoms when like they do have a concussion? Yeah, and so one of the limitations with obviously concussion diagnosis and management is that we are so reliant on, you know, athletes and, and the individuals to be honest with us about their symptoms. And oftentimes that doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> um, and we do see that on certain tests, there are individuals who we call it sandbagging. Um, we'll, we'll try to participate in sandbagging where they're purposely doing poorly on a test at their baseline evaluation, which is prior to the start of their season, um, in order so that if they do sustain an injury during the season, they're not improving on, on that baseline measure. And so it kind of tricks the, the test administrator into thinking that they're actually better off than, than they really are. And so um, it's an unfortunate part of, part of our uh, concussion assessment world, but it does happen. Um, we obviously try to discourage that, but Again, we are at the mercy of self-reported symptoms, so there's only so much that we can do. Well, um, Jesse, so that, that pre-post-testing is a requirement now at the college level by NCAA rules, but isn't it also a requirement even for high school athletes? Um, it is. Uh, baseline testing should be done in, in most settings. It is a requirement now. Um, it just helps to provide the athletic trainers and the coaches and doctors um, with a, a true baseline pre-injury assessment so that they have something to directly compare it to if an individual sustains a concussion. Yeah. And so the idea then would be that um, in order to do the post-test is to get the person out of whatever activity caused the concussion, not to continue on and wait till the game is over sort of thing. Correct. And so that's one of the rule changes um, that has changed within the last um, the consensus statement that came out in 2017, it, it's one of the changes that we see now is that an athlete must be removed immediately if there is a suspected concussion, because that didn't used to happen. And unfortunately, yeah. it still doesn't in some cases, but I would say it's gotten uh, overwhelmingly better over the last few years. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, I'm, I'm a couple years older than you. And I, re I remember back when I was in high school and college, um, the way that blows to the head retreated at concussions was vastly different. I mean, it was, it's almost like a different, the same injury occurred, but the way that people approached it. Can you talk a little bit about those things? What, what like, give us a, a broader view of, the, of how the view of these things has changed. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's changed now, whereas back in the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and even the 90s, it was, you know, oh, you just got your bell rung. Oh, you just uh, got a ding, you got dinged up, you got your bell rung, and it was, you just went along playing, you know, there wasn't all of this research, and, and people weren't knowledgeable of the potential long-term effects of concussions uh, like we are today, and, and concussion science has advanced so much, just, I mean, even in the last five years, but certainly over the last couple of decades, and so now, 
we do know that um, there are potential both short and long-term implications of concussions. And so it's no longer okay to just send an athlete back out there if they're visibly showing signs of a concussion. Yeah. I remember it used to be if you got a blow to the head, you, the, the coach would come over to you and ask you like, what day of the week is it? Yeah. What's the combination yeah. of your locker? <laughs> you know, what's your mother's name? And if you could answer yep. those questions, you'd say, oh, you're okay, go back yeah. in. Yeah, and then the smelling salts. So I know smelling salts were used at, at times. And so, and, and we do still ask, you know, certain questions like that are still asked, you know, what day is it? What year is it? But our, our testing has also come along where we can ask things other than just, you know, how many fingers am I holding up? What's your name? Where are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, 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 I guess, somewhat effective, but not completely diagnostic. Um, and uh, related to, to these sort of things, the, you, you, uh, the, the, the people do things like eye tracking, gait, gait analysis, which is walking analysis. What are some of the other things that can be done like on the field without having to go to a computer and look at the pre-post-test kind of things that, to figure out if a concussion has happened? Yeah, so the most common uh, sideline assessment, I would say, is, is a version of the SCAT. Um, so we, right now we have the SCAT 5, and so that's a combination. So you don't mean SCAT, the stuff that animals leave behind. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry, I should, I should clarify that. It's, because it's the sport concussion assessment tool, and so it's, it's in version 5 right now. And so what that is made up of is a combination of asking about symptoms, self-reported symptoms, um, and then asking cognitive questions that are you know, yes, where, what year is it? What month is it? But also, you know, can you, I read you this list of words and you read them back to me? Can I give you this string of numbers and you report them back to me in reverse order? So it's, it's evaluating concentration. It's evaluating immediate memory, um, delayed memory. And so, and then a balance assessment as well. Those are the types of things that you can do on the sidelines without having to go in front of a computer, like with the impact test um, or anything like that. And you mentioned there's been a huge change over the relatively recent future and how people approach these things. Many of us have heard about research that was done on NFL athletes and their brains. Um, can you, uh, one, tell us about that research and two, tell, tell us how that was effective in changing people's attitudes towards uh, head injuries, especially repeated head injuries. Right. And so... Yeah, so that's, I feel like that's kind of been the buzzword surrounding concussions over the last few years um, is this whole CTE uh, realm. And I think a lot of that gets, gets picked up and reported in the media, um, sometimes accurate and sometimes not. But CTE, Tell us what CTE is, before. is um, yeah, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's a neurodegenerative disease um, that results in finding neurodefibrillary tangles or neurofibrillary tangles, excuse me, within the brain. And so this has been found, it's similar back in the early 1900s, they would first found this in boxers and they called it dementia pugilistica. And mm -hmm. so they were, they were finding it in, in these boxers and it's kind of evolved now into being what was referred to as CTE. And basically the science behind it, there's a group up here at Boston University that has a brain bank um, where former professional athletes are, will donate their brains um, or their families will donate their brains because it's important to note that CTE can only be diagnosed post-mortem. So it's not something that can currently be diagnosed uh, while an individual is alive. And there's a lot of research, I think, kind of going for trying to move forward with that and find a way to diagnose it uh, while someone's still living. But currently it can only be diagnosed after death. 
that's because they look at the anatomy of the brain and they look for, and you can't do that if somebody is still young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ch chopping open someone's brain while they're alive is frowned upon for whatever reason, but <laughs> 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 who knows? But yeah, and so I think, you know, where this gets picked up, particularly in the media, is that, you know, there are these studies showing that, you know, 110 out of 111 of former NFL players or were found to have this disease uh, in their brains that they were donated by their families. And so obviously it's a disturbing number when you think about that, but I think it also gets misconstrued to, to make you think that anyone who ever plays football or hockey or yeah. soccer is, right. is going to end up with this disease. And that's, that's just not true. Uh, quite frankly, from a research perspective, there's still more that we don't know about CTE than what we do. And so I think it's important to not let the media get ahead of what the research actually shows. Because yeah, if you listen to the, the media, you might think that, oh my God, oh, you know, everybody who plays football is going to have this traumatic sure. brain injury. Sure. But you, know, you could easily say, well, maybe people had this injury and it made them good football players. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Yeah. And, but there are an awful lot of athletes who don't have that, it's not an right. unbiased sample. And you mentioned that in, in your talk is that, you know, the only people who are donating their brains are the families of people who, you know, their family members were having behavioral issues. Right, right. There's, so it's like if you go looking for something in a population where you're already suspected of finding it, it doesn't end up being that surprising. And so, so I think a lot more work needs to be done in control populations and, and other populations. And I just think more work in general, you know, we still don't know the effects of genetics and environment and substance abuse. Obviously, going through you know, the NFL, there's been a lot of documented, you know, painkiller abuse and, and opioid abuse. And so we still don't fully understand how that might also affect um, CTE diagnosis. And so there's still just so much that we don't know about who's going to end up with these later life issues and who isn't. And so that's an important area of research um, that people are really trying to advance right now. But the problem that you have with it being so over popularized in the media is that it trickles down to even the parents of youth athletes. I know my boss here is, is a practicing sports medicine clinician and he says frequently that parents come in and they're concerned, even if it's their child's first concussion, like that's what the, the parent and the child are scared of is that it's going to end up in, <laughs> in long right. life, in long life uh, for later life issues. And so it's important to get the message right because it is trickling down um, to you know the the parent and the youth population. Yeah, and the message has to be informed. Now, now um, real quickly, because I'm asked this question: Is do you watch um, professional sports, even college sports, differently? Like, you watch an NFL football game and say, "Oh, those are all, all those are potential subjects for some of my experiments." <laughs> Can you even watch the the, the mixed martial arts? Kind of stuff. I, are you as a concussion researcher? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I love football, and I, I love watching football for sure. I don't, you know, I I can't watch boxing or MMA or anything because I just to deliberately be taking hits to the head like that. Obviously, it happens in football and soccer, but that's not the point of of the sport. Whereas something like boxing and MMA, I just 
it's so detrimental and I just oh I, I, I have a hard time watching it but the football <laughs> and soccer I, I think it's still fine and it's crazy that you know the media focuses so much on football and soccer and hockey and not on boxing and MMA and all these the UFC where the point is to literally knock your opponent out and so it's crazy that that doesn't get focused on or, or demonized more in the media. Yeah. Um, I'll let you take your breath. We'll take um, a few moments for some underwriting announcements. You are listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 TheBronx.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 The Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp here with Dr. Jesse Oldham, a concussion researcher from Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts. And she is telling us about her research, and we're talking about concussions. In the break, Mandy, you indicated you had a question for Dr. Oldham. So the floor is yours. Yeah. So, okay. I don't know how, to, okay. I figured out how to word it. So basically, is there like a, like what can happen if you continuously like get concussions and you don't always like show that you have a concussion? Like I know that there's some like NFL players who get, I forget what it's called, but they get like that thing in their brain, like from the concussions that they get. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like I know um, apparently like Aaron Hernandez had it. Oh, and, yeah, um, that's, that's CTE that, that Jesse was talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, again, it's, we still don't know. We don't know what the dose response relationship of concussions and its relationship to CTE is. And that's the research at this point is really trying to determine, okay, is it more just repetitive head impacts in general, or is it actual concussions? So while if you think about a, a position of a football player, so somebody like a center, like Mike Webster, who was one of the, the first people diagnosed with CTE. So being a center, he sustained a bunch of lower impact level hits, but a lot over a long period of time. Whereas if you look at another position like a wide receiver, they might be the kind of person who's blown up with a really big hit. And so I think part of the research, what research is trying to figure out now is what's more detrimental. A lot of small hits over a longer period of time or a fewer number of big hits and and we don't know yet we don't know which type of hit is worse and so i think that's one of the areas of research that we really need to to advance to know more well let, okay. let, me, let me expand on mandy's question a little bit about risk factors are there risk factors for concussions and you mentioned some of them a little bit earlier, but can you go into a little bit more detail um, about, you know, concussion, CTE, and, you know, that go, run. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, and, and there, I think you can identify a number of risk factors, and, and like I referred to the dose-response relationship before, one of the biggest risk factors of sustaining concussion is, is how many you've had before that, and so we see typically in an individual um, who's had multiple, and that level is usually drawn around three or more, they're at an, the research has shown that they're at an increased risk of um, sustaining a concussion again. And so, and what happens is, is what we're tending to see is that it doesn't take 
as big of an impact to sustain another concussion once you've had several before that. And so I think, you know, one of the great examples uh, a couple years ago, um, Luke Keekley was a Carolina Panthers player and he had a number of, of concussions and one of his later ones, he retired last year, but one of his later ones, you know, you looked at the hit on, on the football field and, and it didn't look like hardly anything. It, it didn't look like it was a big hit at all. But because of the number of concussions that he had had before that, you know, it's speculated that it didn't take much to, to put him back into that concussed state. And so I think it's important to note um, about this dose response relationship with how many injuries you sustained prior. Are there male and female differences in susceptibility or rates or anything like that? Yeah, and so it, it depends on who you ask. And so the research on this is fairly mixed. Um, there is a lot of research showing that females are a more likely to sustain concussions and take longer to recover. Um, there's other research saying that doesn't support that. Um, but the the rationale behind that, people are looking at um, you know things like neck strength. So females tend to have um, weaker neck strength compared to males. And so whether or not that could potentially be um, a risk factor for concussions, I think it's important to look at hormonal differences. And there are people looking at uh, different hormones and, you know, where in a, a female cycle they get injured might have something to do with how many symptoms they present with and, and how long it takes them to recover. Um, so we, we do tend to see some differences. And then the, again, the research is mixed on uh, just what those are. There's differences. They tend to score differently in uh, neurocognitive testing um, and things like that. But I think more research still needs to be done in that area. And what about, talking about the research, what about some of the research on devices that, you know, so you, sometimes you see, you know, middle school, high school, college athletes wearing on their heads. Yes. Does that work? So I think that's another misconception is that, oh, well, helmets, you know, they prevent concussions. If you're wearing a helmet, you can't get a concussion. Um, and that's not true. Helmets are great at what they were designed to do, which is to prevent catastrophic injuries like skull fractures. Um, they're great in that aspect, but there is no such thing as a concussion-proof helmet. Um, and people have mouth guards and people have, you know, headbands and, and collars that go around the neck. And, and all of these devices, I think people are looking for this you know, quick fix, if you will, to prevent concussions. And I think we're just not there yet. Right now, there's not um, really any convincing research showing that any of these devices are actually making a significant impact in, in concussion reduction. So what, so just to be very direct, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask it directly, what would you say to one of those parents who is so afraid of their like middle school or high school kid that they buy all this gear, you know, and make the kids sort of you know, afraid to go out and compete. No, I would say it's a waste of money. <laughs> it's a waste of money. And I think, you know, I think that the, the benefits of youth sports far outweigh the possible negative consequences. Like your, your kid could easily go out and get a concussion from falling off their bike. And so I think that it's really important to, to not, you know, prevent someone from from participating in youth sports because there's just so many benefits to youth sports participation. Yeah. And I think part of, especially with concussion, I think that's an uphill battle that we face. And an important aspect is getting this education out there of what the latest research is showing to to help keep parents and coaches informed um, alike. So, is it, is it fair to say, or is it not fair to say that 
most blows that people experience to the head do not cause concussions. <laughs> concussions, are, are, are they a, a, a relatively rare event? I don't know that I would say rare. I think it just depends on the mechanism. It just depends on, you know, the modality. I, I wouldn't say that they're rare. Um, and, you know, we see concussion numbers increasing, but whether or not that's a result of actual concussion incidents increasing or just a concussion awareness increasing, um, who knows? I think it could be a combination of both. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's a rare occurrence, but certainly not every, you know, if you stand up and hit your head on a table, you're certainly not necessarily going to have a concussion. And, and you're pointing out too, I mean, we talked about athletes as being a subject pool because they tend more, but, you know, children can have concussions from falling off a bicycle, playing on the playground. Um, I, I can imagine, you know, depending on the angle, falling out of bed even. Absolutely. I mean, so, and you can't prote protect your kids from no. everything. No. You can't have people being so afraid of this happening that you, you, don't, you don't participate in life. Absolutely. Uh, and... So I've, all, I've heard this term, not just concussions, I've heard this term called post-concussion syndrome. What is that? So yeah, post-concussion syndrome um, is a term that was developed for individuals who tend to recover beyond that typical concussion recovery window. And so typically, depending on what you reference, a typical concussion recovery window falls anywhere between that one week to two weeks, seven to 10 days, seven to 14 days. But then you do have individuals who take longer. They take, you know, months, sometimes even years. And, you know, we're still trying to identify how can we predict which individuals are going to experience prolonged recovery. But post-concussion syndrome um, is really this label for that group who recovers out beyond that typical concussion recovery window. Does that mean that though, for whatever reason, those people's brains are taking longer to heal than, you know, than the, the median healing time? Yeah, yeah. and it, you know, I think it's fair to say that. And it, you know, truthfully, we don't fully understand why. We've been able to identify um, you know, some potential risk factors. So I know I talked in my presentation on Friday, um, dizziness seems to be a possible indicator of prolonged recovery. So the, the more um, or the higher amounts of dizziness that an individual presents at time of injury tends to be a possible risk factor for prolonged recovery. Um, again, dose-response relationships, so the more concussions an individual has had, typically the longer it takes them to recover after each subsequent one. So, um, you know, but it's still, we're still trying to identify which of these individuals are truly those at risk for this post-concussion syndrome prolonged recovery. And I can imagine it's figuring that out is difficult because as you mentioned earlier there is no objective test to know do you have a concussed yeah. brain yeah. or not other than basically saying yeah. you know how do you feel what's, yeah. the, what's going on exactly there, there's no blood test for it right right yeah not yet and, and you know people are certainly trying to to push biomarker testing to try and, and find that golden ticket if you will but it just we're not there yet and so you know, we'll see how that research uh, progresses in the future. Yeah. I want to ask you about the realities and myths about treatment for concussions, um, yes. but we're going to have to do that in our next segment after we take some brief underwriting hiatus. So you are listening to Help 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 thebronc.com. We'll be right back.
This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. One zero seven seven the Bronx, one zero seven seven the Bronx dot com, recording from the Bronx studios at Ryder University. Welcome back to Help Four One One. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Jesse Oldham, um, a research scientist at Boston Children's Hospital, and Dr. Oldham is an expert in concussions. And at the end of the last segment, I promised I was going to ask you about treatments. Um, there were treatments in the old days and there's treatments now. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the treatments if somebody actually does have a concussion? Absolutely. And so, yeah, this is, this is the area where I think you, you have a lot of myth and fact going on. I think, you know, the, one of the main things being resting, you know, the, this balance of rest and, and activity and exercise. And so, you know, I, I know when I, I had a concussion in sixth grade, I got one in gymnastics in sixth grade. And I remember the doctor telling my mom, you know, to wake me up every single hour and, and not, you know, just make sure that I'm, I'm still alive. And so I think one of the misconceptions is that, you know, you can't sleep after a concussion. And, and now we know that that's not true. So um, if you're a parent and your child has a concussion, or if you have a concussion, um, please let them sleep or please sleep themselves. Uh, we are seeing that particularly within that 24 to 48 hour window following a concussion, rest is very important. Um, that's what's gonna help heal your brain. And so it is important um, to get some sleep after a concussion and to rest after a concussion. But beyond that 48 hour window is where we're seeing differences. And so again, traditionally it used to be for concussion treatment was cocoon therapy. So put someone in a dark room and leave them there until they feel better. And so that was the, the standard approach. And even, unfortunately, some parents are still getting referred to that approach from physicians today. Um, and that's what we're trying to change because now we know that that's actually more harmful than helpful. And so now it's more, you can do things as long as they don't make your symptoms worse. And so we're seeing that getting getting up, doing some activities of daily living around the house, like, like you know, the dishes and, and laundry and doing some things to just get you up and moving, um, typically are helping people uh, more than hurting. And from an exercise perspective, this is a really exciting uh, advancement that has just come out in the last couple of years, really, is looking at prescribed exercise as a treatment for concussion. And so, you know, traditionally it was always don't do any exercise until you 100% feel better. And now we're seeing that uh, prescribed exercise at a sub-symptom threshold level is actually more beneficial. And if you look at the research, there was a great uh, randomized clinical trial that John Letty's group at University of Buffalo did, came out with last year that compared two groups directly, one that was prescribed aerobic exercise, so biking or walking um, at a sub-symptom threshold level, or stretching. And the group who was prescribed aerobic exercise actually recovered more quickly and reported fewer symptoms than the group who was prescribed stretching. So now we're starting to see that um, these exercise prescriptions may be an actual treatment for concussion. Is the thinking that well, your brain's obviously not a muscle, but it's the thinking that getting your heart rate and blood pressure up 
part of the increasing blood flow is is promoting the healing process? Is that what people are suspecting or is there some other mechanism that people are proposing? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, you treat your your brain the same, almost got kind of like a muscle, even though it isn't, where instead of just completely shutting it down, you know, when you completely shut down muscles, you get atrophy and things like that. And so I think the idea is that you don't want to do that to your brain. And so actually introducing some activity to your brain earlier might be more beneficial in the long run. And you mentioned the words subthresholds, and that means you don't want, I'm, I'm, I'm asking in a, in a way, is that saying that you want a level of activity that is not going to cause, you know, you to bounce around and to make things worse? Correct. So sub, yeah, sub-symptom threshold being you don't want your symptoms to get worse while you're doing it. So as if your symptoms start to get worse, that's criteria for terminating that exercise or activity that you're doing. But if you can do it for, for 20 minutes or so, if you can go for a 20 minute walk, um, if you can, you know, bike for 20 minutes at an intensity that doesn't make your symptoms worse, that may actually be more beneficial for you in the long run. And you've done some research on uh, postural gait. How does that relate to this idea that, you know, a little after a concussion, moving is a good thing? Yeah. And so actually that's, that's kind of one of the appeals of looking at gait. Is that okay? You know, gait is an activity of daily living. Everybody is, is walking from, you know, even if you're just walking to the kitchen or the bathroom in your house, like you still have to walk following a concussion. And so when you look at something like gait compared to some of the balance tests that have been traditionally used following concussion, it was okay. If we can identify deficits during an activity like this that everybody's doing constantly, like that might be a more applicable way to identify post-concussion deficits as opposed to some of the current, uh, more commonly used balance assessments, which are, you know, standing on one leg and standing on a piece of foam and stuff like that. I'm, I'm going to prod you a little bit because I was in the audience in your presentation on campus. <laughs> you actually showed some data that said the way that people were walking after a concussion was predictive of some things. I found that fascinating. Can you, can you explain that? I can. So um, what we're seeing across the board um, and, and, it's been great my working with my um, my doctoral advisor, Dr. Thomas Buckley of Delaware, and then Dr. David Howe out at Children's Colorado have been, um, you know, great mentors in this field and, and really kind of set the ground, a lot of the groundwork for this field as well. Um, and so what we've seen across the board is individuals following concussion tend to adopt a, what we call a conservative gait strategy. And so what we mean by that is that they walk slower. So they walk with a slower gait speed. They spend more time in double support. So they spend more time with both feet on the ground and stance phase as opposed to a one foot on the ground and swing phase, um, which is a more stable position. Um, they walk with shorter stride lengths. And so overall, it's just a more conservative movement pattern when they compare it to both their healthy baseline and healthy controls. Um, and so one of my recent papers that came out uh, identified that these individuals that had a conservative gait strategy were also the group that was more likely to sustain a subsequent musculoskeletal injury in the year after. And so um, that was exciting because it, it's kind of moving the science forward where we're seeing for whatever reason, individuals following a concussion are at an increased risk of sustaining subsequent musculoskeletal injuries. And we're still trying to piece together why. So knowing that gait might play a, a part, a role in that is exciting. And when, when you say musculoskeletal injury, you, 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 tell us what you mean by that. 
So, uh, so we're seeing uh, in the year after concussion, um, more higher numbers of ankle sprains, ACL tears, meniscus tears, hamstring strains, any um, particularly lower extremity uh, musculoskeletal injuries like that. Yeah, and, and these are injuries that would not be typical of this population because you were also studying this in, I think one of your subject pools was college athletes. Uh, and so you wouldn't expect them to have, you know, just a concussion to increase some of those injuries in highly conditioned people. Right. And so, you know, it, it lends to the question, what's causing this? Are these individuals simply injury prone? So there's some mixed literature showing, looking at injury rates prior to their concussion. And again, the literature is mixed. So some studies will show higher injury levels prior to concussion and some don't. So, you know, are these individuals just simply injury prone or is there some sort of, you know, neuromuscular deficits happening here? And when we look at their gait, I think, you know, I think that so strongly sends some evidence that there might be some lingering deficits here that aren't able to be identified by the, the clinical concussion tests that are being used widely now. And so for somebody who is on the forefront of concussion research, concussion treatments, where do you see this field going? If you had your, your you know, can tell us about what's happening. There's been so much change in a relatively short amount of time. Um, use your crystal ball and where's the, where, where's the field going? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a huge question, uh, a great question. And I think, you know, I think one of the, for in terms of my area and my research, I think it is just still kind of trying to get to the bottom of this subsequent injury relationship. Because if we can, you know, something like an ACL tear can be detrimental for an athlete's career. And so if we can identify these individuals who are more susceptible or more at risk, then, you know, can we put in injury prevention programs in place prior to prevent some of these injuries? So from my standpoint, that's, that's kind of the direction of, of research I would love to go. And then what other factors are influencing the subsequent injury relationship? In terms of concussions on a, a greater scale in general, you know, I think we have to know more about the long-term implications. And unfortunately, the only way to do that is through longitudinal studies, which are one of the most challenging types of studies to, to perform. But I think, you know, overall more longitudinal studies need to be conducted to see, be able to track these individuals over time and truly look at the long-term health implications. They are, longitudinal studies are sort of the gold standard, but they are hard to do. I mean, they're expensive. Yes. Graduate students want to graduate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, researchers um, have grants to write. And so yes. um, sometimes the best studies are really hard to do. You also, I guess for people who are listening, I just want to underline a lot of the things that you say. You say it just as a matter of fact, but I'm old enough to remember where the words preventative medicine um, were, were, were naughty words. Because, um, you know, you didn't treat, you know, people didn't go to medical school to prevent medicine. People went to medical school to treat diseases. And I think what you're bringing up, especially from the new generation of people going into science, this idea of preventative medicine is sort of revolutionary, changing the way people do science, changing the way people do medicine. And I just want to, because it's, it's sort of embedded in everything you're saying. And, you know, for us old folks, that wasn't always the case. Do you see that too in, in, in your field? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think the, the landscape of, of concussion research and really injury research across the board is changing. Um, you know, injuries, both concussion and musculoskeletal alike, um, 
have excuse me economic detriment you know they're expensive they cost a lot of money and then from just the health standpoint you know i think we have to be talking about prevention particularly as we did learn more about the long-term implications of injuries like this i think we have to be talking about prevention in order to you know sustain this this population and to keep things like youth athletics alive you know otherwise who's going to play sports <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true oh unfortunately we are running out of time time thank you so much dr Olin. this has been a great conversation i wish we could keep going you've been a great 1077 the bronx 1077 the bronx.com we are recording live from the bronx studios thank you for listening this Health 411 program is part of Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about concussions, myths about concussions, current research in concussions. I'd like to thank again Dr. Jesse Oldham, our guest from Children's, uh, Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me. My great pleasure. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.